Is the West in decline? Is it the end of days or just media hype? What is the West anyways? On this episode of Classical Wisdom Speaks, we'll discuss how ancient wisdom is necessary to solve modern crises with Spencer Clavin, a classicist with a PhD from Oxford and host of the Young Heretics podcast, as well as assistant editor at the Claremont Review of Books and the American Mind. Spencer is also author of Music in Ancient Greece, Melody, Rhythm, and Life, as well as most recently, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. But before we delve into emetizing the eschaton, a quick reminder to check out classicalwisdom.substack.com for our free newsletter and articles. You can also support our classics-loving mission by subscribing either here on YouTube or on our site. Now, how can we save the West? Well, I wanted to just jump right in because I think this is a, it's a great book. It's very interesting, How to Save the West. But uh, the premise, we have to always start with the premise, of course. And it's based on the idea that the, the end is nigh for the West. Um, and I just, I, I have to ask, is that definitely the case? I mean, do you think everyone's just sort of made fearful of the media and there's so much hype or, or are we definitely in decline? I am so glad that you started off with this question, in part because, as you may imagine, when you name a book How to Save the West, there is a fair amount of uh, insecurity, (laughs) self-doubt that comes along with it. So I'm very glad to have the opportunity to kind of talk out this premise with you. Um, In the opening, in the introduction of the book, I cite this passage from a one of the minor works of Tacitus, the Dialogus, and it's a discussion, um, an imagined discussion among kind of erudite friends about who the better orators are. Are they the orators that are living today or what about the, you know, the greats of the past? And it's Marcus Aper, I think, who says there's this venomous defect in human nature which leads us to be forever yearning back to the good old days and despising the present. Um, So it's very, very easy to lapse into this kind of nostalgic, uh, misty-eyed sentiment about, oh, the past was so great, and now everything is is falling apart. And there are people who will sell that very kind of catastrophizing for no small amount of uh, money. It's a very very lucrative business to say everything's falling apart. Um, and, And I think we have to balance that kind of uh, self-awareness with the realization that, you know, things can get better and worse. You can be in times of greater and, and lesser trouble. Um, and, and so it's not impossible to propose that, you know, things might be actually in a, in, a, in a real rocky period. My thesis in the book is basically this. Um, nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. Nobody can can project out 10, 20 years down the line and say everything's about to you know, fall apart. The, 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 the fall of Rome is nigh. America is collapsing. Um, but we have suffered a sea change in the world generally and therefore also in the Western world um, having to do with digital technology. And this new form of tech that has just revolutionized the way we relate to one another, the way we relate to physical space, the way we relate to ourselves and our bodies, um, it's dredged up these very fundamental questions, questions like, what is man, right? What is a human being? What's our place in the universe? And how should we uh, deal with like things like the fact that we die, our mortality? Um And I think that what that has shown is that our resources for answering those questions are not as rich as they could be or indeed as they once were, that we um, could stand to recover the best that has been thought and said about those issues if we're going to move uh, meaningfully and humanely forward into the future. So, you know, another version, uh, as as a Greek speaker, you will know that the verb sozdain, to save, um, could also mean to preserve, to retain, to, to rehabilitate. Um, and I think we're always doing that in some sense. And I think we're up against a particularly urgent moment um, for, for that kind of project, for saving the West in that way. 
Yeah, I mean, I I've, I've brought this question up a bunch of times to my readers that there's this, this tendency to want to feel like that we're in the end of days, to amortize eschaton, mm-hmm. to to bring the nigh on. I feel like it's it's a solipsistic stance almost, like we're at this end point. Is technology, mm-hmm. like what are the crises right now that you think mean that it's the end and is not something that is fearful throughout the ages that we have sort of almost psychologically inherent this desire to to be the witnesses to the final chapter yeah totally i mean i definitely think that you see this this is something that transcends politics interestingly you get you know conserve the conservative flavor of it is that the world is ending the west is crumbling that's kind of the flavor that i'm perhaps more uh prone to myself being a you know more of a conservative kind of thinker but on the left you get you know the or the the climate change is going to destroy us all um you should stop having kids because it's not worth it or it's a burden on the planet and so forth um and so, yeah, part of it is just I think it's exciting to imagine that we're going somewhere that there's a it's kind of you know grand crisis facing us, um, and and it's less exciting to think well actually we're just in this project of daily preservation of carrying the traditions forward. But I would say this, you know. Um, you look at the worldwide trends that we see in the decline of birth rates and and fertility. You look at some of these narratives that come out. I mean, even the fact that they that it transcends the the right and the left. Um, that you know maybe it's not worth having kids. That maybe we should uh, you know be flying off to other planets to escape the disaster on this one. Um, I think at the very least there is a sense of uh, an encroaching sense of despair that that digital technology has brought on. One of the crises that I talk about on the book is is the the body crisis, which could be understood as just the sense that uh, it's not worth it being human anymore. You know, it's like our machines do everything better than we do. And uh, we can update and edit ourselves in digital space with this incredible precision. Um, shouldn't we just kind of transcend our humanity, our embodiment in space and time. Um, why do we even, you know, what's why is it even worth it? Um, and I do think that's a crisis. I mean, I think that's a crisis in the true sense of two opposing visions of humanity. Are we, um, as we are, are we something important, unique, and 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 special? Right, embodied souls um, in the kind of Aristotelian hylomorphic sense. Or are we a kind of first model to be scrapped and left behind? And you want to talk about immanentizing the eschaton. You know, there's a real uh, apocalyptic vision is like, well, I, you know, I'm basically not as good as a computer. So I should make myself as much like a computer as possible. You read the kind of post-human or transhuman literature that's out there. um, And these really laundry lists of measurements of of humanity in terms of longevity, speed, strength. um, Nowhere in those lists will you find uh, questions about virtue, right? About about excellence at the specifically human project. Um, And and this is something that I think is, is terribly mistaken, that we stand to lose a lot if we abandon that notion that actually um, humanity is a type of thing, a genos, and, uh, and, and excellence in being human, which is to say virtue, um, isn't just a kind of you know, halfway house of evolution, but it's actually an end point that we are ends in and of ourselves, uh, moral ends. I think this, this sort of stuff, you know, it, it, it's, it's not that to say that tomorrow we're all going to be uh, absorbed into the singularity, but it is to say that uh, people are talking as if uh, that might be a nice uh, outcome for all of this. And and the part, part of the point of the book is to remind people that actually, no, there's a deeper and richer tradition, a vein of wisdom that we can bring forward into this uh, so-called brave new world um, that doesn't involve kind of throwing up our hands and declaring that the end is here. You know, I think um, you're, you're so right. There's so many people talking about almost nature being better than humans. And you're like, we are mm-hmm. part of <laughs> nature. Um, but, you know, before we proceed, I think it's really important because you talk about this in, in introduction and in the beginning. And I think it's it's an important point. What is the West specifically? Mm, yeah. Yeah. You will get a lot of pushback. One gets a lot of pushback, uh, again, from multiple corners moments are talking about the west with a capital w uh the most obvious uh, objection at least to my mind it comes 
from a sort of, uh, you might call it post-colonialist or kind of racial critique that the West is basically just a dog whistle. It's just a buzzword for white people, essentially. Kwame Anthony Appiah and The Guardian made this argument a few years back that basically when people say the West, they're just kind of delicately carving around all of the white European or European adjacent nations um, in order to say this is the great the greatness of the world. And then on the other hand, you get, you know, nationalist arguments that say, no, I'm not a Westerner, I'm an American, or I'm a Brit, or I'm, you know, the, these are unique traditions that don't deserve to be kind of subsumed into some all encompassing, uh, you know, supranational project. And I take both of those uh, critiques seriously, so far as they go, but I think they both kind of miss the point. Um, when I define the West in the book, what I say is that we are looking here at the cultural inheritance of Athens and Jerusalem. And by Athens, I mean, you know, the the pagan um, ph philosophical tradition, which comes down from Socrates through Plato and Aristotle, branches out into the Hellenistic schools, that whole kind of uh, cultural baggage and and, and tradition of, of thinking about what can be known. Um then when I say Jerusalem, what I mean is the monotheists of the Near East, primarily first the Jews and then the Christians, right? And the uh, the scriptural tradition, the rabbinic tradition, uh, the the patristic literature that kind of interprets those uh, those texts. And one of the things that you immediately see when you talk about this is that is a real thing. That's not something that, you know, I, I made up. Uh, it's not it's not a kind of construct that I'm applying to history. These cultures really did engage with one another. Um, they they met in some sense on the Areopagus at Paul's kind of evangelizing uh, to the to the Greek philosophers. Um, and they shaped the history of of Europe, of the Roman Empire, um, and and they've and right down to the present day to America and to the way that our founding documents work. Um, at the same time, it's not a, a prescription for, you know, some kind of rigid dogma. It has no racial character because, of course, Athens and Jerusalem already is kind of a, a, a racially, uh, you know, multifarious group of of, of uh, individuals. And it, it, it does it contains within it multiple strains of of tradition, of argument about certain questions, um, fighting back and forth. Um, but I think I, I, crucially, I believe very strongly that that tradition is important that uh, it doesn't get to you know we don't get to reject it just because it's tradition just because it comes from some so supposedly unenlightened past um that actually if we want to understand ourselves if we want to know why we think what we think um and if we want to uh, develop our ideas about what is good um we need to be engaging with that tradition because even if we do you know say proudly that we are american or we're French or we come from this particular place, you know, um, we also are inheritors of this larger tradition throughout time and history, um, which is uh, a rich storehouse of insight for us, especially now, especially as we're up against all these uh, questions that the digital age presents us with. You know, I, I I think it's so important to think about it as like the great conversations. And, mm -hmm. and there, there are these conversations and they don't necessarily need to be okay, Aristotle's 100% right about everything. It's about having a dialogue and people from all over the world can partake in that dialogue. I, I mean, I'm here in South America and it, you go by any bus stop and there's the classics there. I mean, it's it's still very beloved. And, and even if the Western culture that has been inherited is not in one spot, it can be anywhere in the world. Um, the ideas, I guess. Oh, sure. I, I mean, I mentioned... Yeah, I, I said I mentioned in the book, you know, Cardinal Sarah, who is a Ghanaian prelate. I mean, he's kind of one of the, in my view, one of the greatest living Western thinkers. Of course, we you know know that uh, around the uh, edges, you might say, of this tradition, there have been all sorts of people who have contributed to it, like the um, you know the the Arabic philosophers uh, that I mentioned who preserved the uh, natural scientific tests, texts of Aristotle, among others. Um, and yeah, you know, there are people in the book like David Hume that I take issue with, you know, kind of argue with. And one of the things I say is I'm arguing with this guy as Westerner to Westerner. Right? The reason that we even have something to argue about is because we share, obviously, this common ground of history and the questions that have developed over time uh, among us. And so I'm proposing, basically what I'm doing is I'm drawing out some strands of argument that I think are uh, ideally suited to meet 
the problems of our times. But at some bigger level, I think what I'm trying to say to people is that it's not wrong or evil um, or even prohibitively difficult uh, to dip into this conversation yourself, to think of yourself as a participant in that conversation um, and as somebody who might carry those traditions forward. Certainly. And that kind of kind of leads me to my next question, because uh, it, in your premise is that it's it's for the ordinary people that, you know, the for everybody and that they mm. are the ones who are in charge of, of saving uh, the West. Uh, has this always been the case historically? I mean, do people sort of assume that the elites or the politicians should be doing it or the academics or the intellectuals? Um, why address the common person? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that the elites and the academics, like uh, myself, like to think that we are in charge of of preserving these traditions, that we are the so-called thought leaders, right? And and, and there is something to be said for uh, true aristocracy. That is to say, you know, there are people who have uh, who are uniquely gifted in uh, the work of of you know thought and and in the work of leadership. So I don't want to deny that. Or suggests that like there's no place for um, a true elite in in a in a good and healthy society. Um, but I do think that you know we we give short shrift to the ownership of the common man over these great ideas, even in eras before ours when literacy was much less widespread. And I mean, of, of course, you know, there are always going to be people who rise to the top. There are going to be people who, you know, chart new new courses ahead. Um, but one of the things I say in, in the book is, you know, when we sit down and we think about like the problems in our time or whatever you want to call it, you know, you, you think like, wow, the country is falling apart. Uh, the, there's all the kids are going insane. Like the, the all of this, uh, I don't understand this transgenderism stuff. It's going so crazy so quickly, whatever. Um, we think about that question, those questions, as if uh, we were Ron DeSantis. Like, what am I going to do tomorrow to write a law that's going to fix the problem? Capital F, capital P. Um, and Harry Jaffa, who's kind of a for intellectual forebear of the think tank where I work, the Claremont Institute, he has this wonderful passage in which he talks about, you know, the the Western project is actually consummated each time a single human heart is saved from the nihilistic dark night of relativism. Each time somebody wakes up and says, the good is actually knowable, it's not arbitrary, it's not a matter of, uh, you know, of pure consensus or relativism, but actually can be found and known and sought. Um, that's the whole point of all of this. And so, yeah, elites have an important role to play. Um, and and there were there have been times in history when elites were really the only people that had access to some of the texts that we're, we're talking about. Um, that's not the era that we live in now. And more fundamentally, you know, the um, the point of it all, right, the reason that these books have endured, the reason that these ideas have been successful um, must surely be at least in part, not that they furnish material for PhD theses or that they, uh, you know, develop lovely uh, afternoons for people like you and me, uh, but that they have something to say about being good at being human. Right. And and if you can convey that to people, um, I, my sense has been, and I'm sure you've discovered this too, you know, people will listen to you while they're driving their tractors. People will listen to you while they're out, you know, cops will listen to you out on their beat. You know, they're, they're, I, I have heard from so many people who listen to my podcast or watch my, or, you know, read my work that, you know, this stuff actually has come to matter to them. And, and I don't think that's an accident. I think that's the, the kind of the point of it all, uh, even if, there's, you know, there are a lot of other factors at, at play. The common man is is the goal, ultimately, is the end point of, of all of this work. You know, it, it, I sell during the holiday season a 644-page anthology of ancient Greek mm. and Roman literature. I mean, it's a tomb. Yeah. Uh, and I see the addresses of where I send them to. And it is completely evenly distributed across the United mm. States and around, uh, around the globe, actually. Um, wow. And I mean, even maybe more so if you take into population density, it's amazing because it's it's 
it's completely spread out. And I, you know, uh, and not to creep out anybody listening, but sometimes I like just looking where these spots are because, you know, <laughs> I love, you know, humanizing my my readers and, and knowing where they are. And and there it's, you know, a small town in West Texas. It's a spot in Wyoming. It's, you know, Northern California and Southern Florida and like everything in between. Um, mm. And so it's, I think it's great for people to realize that like, it's something that actually can bring everybody together is these great ideas, um, especially in a time, I think, in America when there's so much polarization to realize that everybody can partake in this great conversation um, and mm. kind of delve in the ideas. And a lot of times, I think the, the beauty of the classics and ancient history in some ways is that they're much more accessible than modern history and modern philosophy. And I sometimes bring up things, say, with my daughter. I'm, like I, I mentioned before, I was starting a, a course for children. And it's, you know, just asking a question like, how do you know what you know? Or yeah. what I, I did the story of Theseus and the Minotaur. What makes a hero? What makes a monster? I mean, just asking the question, I think, is so valuable. Yeah. You know, uh, one topic that I always find people are doing philosophy without even knowing it is the question of friendship, right? Um, you say to people, what makes a good friend? And how do you, you know, how do you find good friends? Uh, how do you be a good friend? People will come out with just incredibly profound reflections on this urgent question, which is so simple, uh, so universal, and yet uh, so, so, you know, difficult to really get right. And yeah, I certainly think it's like, if you think the ancients are hard, try picking up a modern book of philosophy, you'll often find questions, you know, writing and questions far abstracted from the kind of earthy urgency of those issues. Whereas you can read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, you can read Cicero on friendship, and he'll, you know, actually tell you things that you might want to hear and, and want to know. Um, but yeah, I think it's so beautiful what you say about sending the anthology around. One thing that's occurred to me or a metaphor that's occurred to me sometimes is, you know, whenever you have a public presence, people start to kind of, you know, look to you, ask you questions, think of you as as somebody who's kind of like out on the forefront of the battle or whatever you want to call it. Um, and the thing I always say is, no, 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 we're not the the leaders. We're the standard bearers. We're in the back, right? We're holding up this image or this idea that, you know, you need to refer back to. Um, and you need both things. Of course, you need you need every, uh, you know, person to play each role in in a successful army or whatever metaphor you want to use. But you know, the people who are getting that anthology um, in, in some ways are, as, as I said before, they're kind of the point of the whole thing. Um, now, you've mentioned a few times, like the word virtue, and mm. also about relativism and versus moral virtues. I mean, what role specifically do you feel virtue plays in the decline of society? Right. So, as easy question, I know, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. This is uh, just how right? long you got. <laughs> uh, I'll, we'll be here all night, folks. Um, well, I mean, your listeners will probably know, and you certainly know that you know the the concept of virtue, as it comes down to us from the Greek philosophy, is rooted in arete, excellence, right? And initially, before you really get the kind of formalization of the philosophical schools, arete can be excellence in anything. You can have arete in foot racing. Uh, horses have arete uh, when they're very good at being horses, right? Um, and so what we're really talking about here is what is it to be good at being a human being, right? And the aethikai aretai, the excellence of character, the excellences of character, um, have to do with fulfilling our role as rational animals. Now, the question immediately then occurs, right? So what's a human being for, right? I mean, what are we supposed to be doing? And Aristotle's famous answer, eudaimonia, flourishing is kind of like, you know, you're supposed to be living into the max of what you are, which is reason embodied in, in flesh, right? You, you, have a, you have logos, but that logos is kind of threaded through this animal body. Um, and you need both of those things to be truly what you are. Um, and so, you know, the the next thing that Aristotle says quite brilliantly is that mankind is a politique animal, an animal that deals with um, you know life in in community together, and and we are always wherever we are, right? We are whenever we share space, we have these rituals together, we have laws, we have um, you know ways of of doing life together, and so when you lose confidence that there is such a thing as doing that well, 
right? That there is an objective good uh, about, you know, for each individual, but also for us together as a, as a group working together. Um, you've almost lost the, the whole notion of what a society even is. So when you put it that way, you start to realize, well, actually virtue and, and society or civilization are almost tautological. Like they're almost the same the same thing um, viewed from two different angles, from the kind of ground up individual level versus the top down sort of sociological level. So, you know, one of the things I, I talk about in in the book uh, is uh, there are these two chapters, two sections, um, the crisis of meaning and the crisis of the regime. And they're 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 related to one another, I think, um, in in precisely this way. the The regime crisis kind of goes into well, you know, throughout history, uh, the political philosophers of the West have observed the ways in which human societies break down and then replace one another as they decay. So you get you start, let's say, with a strong man with a king, um, but then you know that kind of decays into a certain form of tyranny. So you get an uprising of the elite who create an aristocracy, but then they just become kind of crony with one another and they become an oligarchy. So you get this popular uprising and that's democracy. But of course, democracy devolves into mob rule and then you get a strong man to come back in and the cycle begins anew, right? So the whole question then for America, for any you know civilization is how do you, uh, is it possible to arrest course or to stop this from just endlessly kind of trampling you under? Um and the answer that America kind of inherits from the West is the perpetual motion machine, which is the Republic. And the Republic combines these different forms of government against one another uh, until you end up in this kind of mixed regime, the checks and balances of the presidency and the, or, you know, however you want to figure it. But it, in our case, it's the executive, the legislative, the judiciary as kind of held accountable to the people. Um when you start saying this, you realize something that John Adams uh, famously said, which is that this constitution isn't designed for a people without virtue, uh, a moral and religious people is how he put it. And uh, that, I think, is part of what we are up against now, the lack of a shared concept of virtue, um, which famously in the kind of classical formulation is necessary to true friendship, right? To true philia or or, or civic love, um, to sharing with one another in a common project. Um, it's it's it sounds when you start talking about virtue like you're just here to scold people, like you're doing you did a bad thing, you you know you read the wrong book, you I mean a lot of kind of culture war conversations go along these tracks in in one way or another. Um, but actually the the reason to talk about virtue at all is because if we're going to do life together, uh, if we're going to wake up tomorrow morning and have our disagreements, discuss them rationally, go to the school board, talk talk it out together, um, then we need that common ground of at least accepting to, together that there's such a thing as as the good, right? And that what, that's what we're aiming at. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's claiming to embody these, these concepts. Um, but unless we believe they exist, unless we're aiming at them, uh, I don't really think we stand a chance. Yeah, it's, it's we, we recently had a, uh, an event about free speech. And I thought mm. similarly in that we should take these lib liberties and rights um, goals as like free speech or, or democracy and take them with the, the responsibility of knowing how to have a conversation and have rational discourse and learn how to be able to listen and talk in order to enjoy free speech, you know, we, we need to be deserving of it almost. I wonder if that's sort of the same with uh, our state, that we need to have the aim mm -hmm. of virtue in order to participate in it. Absolutely. I mean, something that I sort of a while back found myself digging into is the, uh, you know, the history, not just of, of free speech discourse, but of kind of classical liberalism more generally and the precursors to, to Mill on this, you know, Milton's Area Pagetica is a text that comes readily to mind, arguing for freedom of, of the press, right? Um, and you notice that even in Mill, who's probably the boldest formulation of this, you know, anything goes, let a thousand flowers bloom kind of uh, mode of, of discourse, there's a passage where he says, of course, we all know that if a man is crazy and he is walking off a bridge, we can arrest his freedom. We can stop him from doing that because we know he didn't intend to walk off the bridge. 
And you think, well, that's kind of an interesting throwaway little comment because it, it's not really explored how you might know that, right? And then, or, or you know, and I think the reason for this is that you know, Mill is operating in a context as Milton was as well, where he can take it for granted that certain things are just not, you know, even if they might be entertained in the abstract, they're not going to be pursued in polite society. I mean, for Milton, it's atheism, for instance, right? You know, eight tracks are seriously arguing against the existence of God. Well, we all sort of know that that's, that's never going to happen, right? Um, and and I think that, uh, you know, those cultural assumptions, uh, which can be good or bad, but are always there, they're kind of like the jewel, they're kind of like the crown and the libertarianism or classical liberalism is like the jewel that's set in that crown. It's not enough on its own to just have this thing. Well, everything goes right. Um, you actually have to have this framework, this architecture around it. Um, and that's what I talk about in the, the kind of last portion of, of how to save the West is that, you know, these things are good. There's been a lot of, you know, argument lately that liberalism itself is kind of a disaster and we should have, we should scrap it all together. Um, but I think that what's much nearer the truth is that uh, we we got to the point where we were capable of of doing liberalism, of, of exploring free speech, of, of having these these personal liberties. Um, and and we treated those so entirely as as ends in themselves and as exclusive goods. We forgot that they're supported and upheld by this entire social structure, um, which does involve kind of cultural assumptions, shared cultural assumptions about what what good even is. Um, and, and I think we're back to a point where we have to recover that that crown in which the jewel is set. Now, I'd love to get into a bit of the guts, if I may, um, oh, of yeah. these these crises. Uh, first off, how did you determine them as how did you sort of separate them and categorize them? Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, part of the point of the book is to take the daily sort of news cycle stories that we see and try to uncover some of the deeper trends or questions that are at work underneath them. And so my first approach was just to say, all right, so we're always yelling about something, right? Every day, some new thing comes across our feed to yell at each other about. And today it's like, you know, transgenderism and tomorrow it's uh, Donald Trump and, you know, now it's January 6th, whatever. Um, and so the first thing that I, I try to do is say, well, if we pull back the camera for a minute and we extend our memories for longer than uh, 24 hours um, and one news cycle, what are the kind of threads linking these even these disputes and these disagreements together and and what are the things that we haven't really sat down the reason that we're fighting so vociferously is because we haven't sat down and thought through like what are the first principle questions at stake here um and so that's kind of what led me into the first crisis which is the crisis of of reality um and i i deal with this you know both at a tech level when you have people fighting over things like you know, virtual reality, the metaverse, um, but also at the kind of news level of post-truth politics and Donald Trump lied about this. Well, AOC lied about that. Right. Um, and I do think that when you start to think about these things collectively as a whole, you uncover a sense that actually people aren't sure um, that there is anything out there that's absolutely true, no matter who disagrees, um, that has, has a kind of objective validity. And they aren't sure if it would be good if there were, if, if, you know, maybe it's actually inconvenient for there to be these kind of hard and fast realities like the good for us, for instance, or the beautiful. Um, and what you find is that that's very similar, analogous to uh, precisely the crisis that kind of kicks off, inaugurates the Western philosophical tradition in Athens, that that there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. If you can vote for it, you can do it, right? Um, this is what leads you to such atrocities as, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the massacres that Athens committed in the in the Peloponnesian War, right? And, and so kind of teasing that apart um, is, is where the book begins, right? sort of saying, is there something that is true and false, no matter who disagrees or agrees? Um, and then, of course, the next question that occurs is, well, what? <laughs> what is it, right? Um, Plato's answer is that there is some ideal realm of the forms beyond this realm. 
Aristotle says, well, actually, the forms are embodied. Um, and, and that leads me on into this next question, right? What, what is the body, right? What is the flesh? Why do we even need to have these, uh, you know, to put it crudely, these, these meat sacks with chemistry sets inside um, that, that break down and die? Um, why, why do we have to do this at all? And, and I think you can actually see this anxiety, which is very ancient, playing out in all sorts of places. We talk, we've touched on this already, you know, the kind of sudden uptick in gender dysphoria, um, but also the concern about, you know, digital avatars, and the idea that we're going to just kind of like gene edit our way into some digitally perfected future. Um, and so I kind of think that uncovering a little bit of that wisdom we were talking about earlier about what human beings are, um, which is also the premise of all the virtue stuff we were talking about, because you can't actually have virtue unless you have an idea of, of the human person. Um, and this is kind of where the rubber meets the road with that crisis of meaning that I was talking about earlier, right? What are we and uh, what's the point of us? Um, it, which is a question you can't answer without think, talking about ultimate realities, right? Um, if the world runs on some kind of uh, reproduction, replication, evolution, right? The, whatever scientific idea you want to adopt, um, then what are we reproducing? What's the point of, of human existence at all? Um, which leads me into this crisis of of religion, kind of the question about, you know, can we still believe in that realm of ideas, in that kind of absolute truth, uh, in in a, a, a personality even, a person behind that absolute truth? Um, so I, I address that in, in the fourth part. And then uh, that's kind of when I start to turn back to the politics of it all. It's sort of, if you think, you can think of it as a journey away from and then back to the news cycle. Um, you know, if you start with kind of the daily uh, news stories that we deal with, um, and that sends you on a journey through these crises until you can get back to the crisis of the regime with a little bit more seriousness. Um, and that's the stuff we were talking about earlier to do with the kind of, uh, you know, the cycle of regimes, how do we stop it? What's, where's America going? What's going to happen? Um, and, and the book kind of, leaves readers, uh, I hope, with a sense that it, although nobody knows the future and nobody can predict, you know, how the next election is going to go, um, you and I are actually inheritors of that Western tradition just by waking up in the morning um, and that our task is both simpler, uh, smaller, but also more profound and uh, more spiritually crucial than just to fight over this or that news story or win this or that election. It has to do with that uh, salvation of the human heart from the dark night of nihilism that Jaffa was talking about. Yeah, it's it's amazing because, I mean, I'm not in the U.S. And when I go, I get that the bombardment of media. And it's it's so hard to keep that level of energy, of emotion that you're being provoked into feeling all the time. I can mm. see how eventually people are just like, I got to tap out. I got to find something more meaningful than all this. But, uh, you know, you, you you bring up the whole Plato's cave analogy uh, in the beginning. And as you rightly pointed out in the book that, um, you know, it doesn't go well for the philosopher when he <laughs> points out to people about the current situation that uh, they're staring at the shadows in the wall. Um, and from my own personal experience, sometimes it's 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 very tricky considering the level of emotion people have invested in every single news cycle. Um, so are, are you getting sort of pushback sometimes when trying to say, like, let's look at the bigger picture or step back? I mean, is there a, a strong reaction to some of the parts in your book? Yeah, well, I mean, the brilliance of the Republic is that the first scene is an interaction between a uh, philosopher and people who refuse to be convinced. Right. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a, it, it's done in this lighthearted way, but Socrates friends waylay him and demand that he come spend the night uh, at their place. And he says, what if I persuade you not to, that I have to go home? And they say, what if we won't listen? <laughs> and uh, this is a great example of that kind of homespun simplicity that nevertheless contains something very profound, which is, yeah, if, if people, I mean, persuasion depends on this kind of agreement to listen to one another. Um, and the the allegory of the cave ends instead with, you know, crucifixion and, and uh, disaster, um, which of course, Plato would have ruefully conceded is a very real possibility after having watched Socrates get, you know, condemned to uh, to suicide, to forced suicide by the state. Right. Um, luckily, nobody has yet uh, ordered that I commit suicide by drinking hemlock, although if I get annoying enough, maybe somebody will finally recommend it. Um, you know, I, I, I feel as we discussed, I feel very fortunate that 
uh, that there's so much hunger out there, as you suggest, for something deeper and richer, um, that you can find people who will listen and will kind of take this stuff to heart. Um, but at the same time, of course, you know, the uh, you put your foot in, in controversies like the ones that this book deals with or the ones that you have to talk about if you're if you're talking about, um, you know, the great ideas of, of the West, even just using the word the West, as we discussed earlier. Um, yeah, you're going to get called all sorts of names. I mean, I, I count myself lucky the world being what it is. I count myself lucky if I'm not getting, you know. Uh, pilloried, basically, if I'm not being put in the stocks. Um, but I, I think I'm sure you'll you know, have experience with this, too. Like anybody that talks about stuff online is going to have horrible things said about him, especially if uh, he's he or she is suggesting that, you know, there might be something better to do with your time than uh, stress out over the latest uh, news cycle. You know, I, I got to say, I've been very, very fortunate. Like our our readership and our community is just so genuine and and mm. thoughtful. Um, but yes, it, anytime anything's out there, it, there'll always be a troll that will pop up at some point. Um, but uh, I'd love to get back into a little bit of the classics um, and some mm. of the solutions that are found in them. What, who are some of the references that you found most applicable to these modern situations? Yeah, you know, uh, let me preface this by saying that one of the real revelations for me in the process of writing the book is there's always this debate about, you know, is is there a quarrel between the ancients and the moderns? Is ancient wisdom fundamentally unrecoverable? Is the past another country? We can't understand these people. Um, and we tend to think about it in terms of, you know, there is a static canon of texts and it goes from the Republic through Aristotle's politics into, you know, up, up into Machiavelli and so forth. Um, and that's certainly true. I mean, certain things are enduring and, and, and great. Um, but it's also the case that as you study the history of the canon, you learn that different texts have had different weight at different times. And the example I give in the book is, is that, you know, uh, in the era of say the cold war and, um, you know, the, the rocketing advance of, of science, uh, Plato's Republic is a lot more favored than Plato's Timaeus. Uh, college students, if they're going to read any Plato, they're going to read the Republic, not the Timaeus. If you go back to the Middle Ages, you know, a university student is going to be handed the Timaeus right off the bat as the key to understanding the world. And what's what's really fascinating is that now I think, you know, Timaeus, the Timaeus is coming back as kind of more relevant. We're talking about space travel. We're talking about the construction of space time. And, you know, Plato's got some interesting things to say in there. So all of this to say in the book, what I am offering is the texts that I think are, are helpful now. Um, and so the ones that, that you know, in, in my interaction with uh, with my audience, the thing that, you know, I really have found is um, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics is just a, you know, such a key text for people. Um, and I can see why, because, you know, you want to get up in the morning and believe that it's not a matter of indifference, how you behave. And I think that that text, Nicomachean Ethics, um, is so valuable because it puts the proper amount of weight on human action. It, it does not let you off the hook in, in even the slightest, um, while at the same time, maintaining absolute realism about what people are and what's possible. Um, the, this this key Aristotelian virtue of phrenesis, prudence, practical wisdom, which says, yeah, you know, this is uh, the, the modern version of this is politics is the art of the possible, right? Um, we, we hold ourselves to and we have in our minds um, pure standards, right? The the perfection of, of what courage would look like in any given situation. And there's, you know, not one ounce of anything Aristotle says, you know, takes away from that ideal. But he does say, okay, you might be able to make this step toward that perfection. And I think that's something people are, it's so sorely lacking. Most of the time you either get, um, you know, just you you need to be perfect all the time uh, or nothing matters and you can do anything you want right um, and and the middle ground that the golden kind of mean that aristotle charts in that book is is i think wonderfully important um 
the other one that I often suggest that people dip into rather than reading at a stretch is Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica. I think people um, are daunted by this text and rightly because it's kind of an encyclopedia. I mean, Aquinas says in the opening, this is like, you know, the answer to every question I can possibly think of about the Christian faith or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, if you uh, <laughs> if if you treat it that way, you're you're likely to get overwhelmed. But if you find yourself with a question like, for instance, well, what, you know, is the relationship between the body and the soul? Um, and you look it up in the Summa, you are liable to find not only a sort of survey of the possible answers, but an extremely sensible and indeed, in many cases, Aristotelian um, uh, approach to, to that issue. The last one I will say is, um, is, is Machiavelli. And this is maybe a bit of a surprise because people think of this guy as like the evil uh, schemer of realpolitik, um, although I'm sure that your listeners are much smarter than this. But, you know, the the typical sort of reaction to Machiavelli is, well, he he thinks the church is just this kind of namby-pamby, wishy-washy uh, group of weaklings. And what really counts is to go forth and conquer new places and retain, acquire and retain power. Um, and there's some truth to that. But really what I love about, about Machiavelli is that he is uh, the first and in some senses still one of the only people to really grapple with the transformation of the world that was affected by the discovery, by the European discovery of, of the North American continent. Um, and the fact that the world was suddenly this big place and this interconnected place um, and, and that the game was changed that way, um, which is all of these are commonplaces now. But at the time, it was like you know, Machiavelli says, people will be jealous of me for saying these sorts of things the same way that you might be jealous or angry at somebody for charting a course into new waters, new territory. I, I think Machiavelli is still uh, one of the smartest people for thinking about that and for thinking about those questions of, of regime failure that we're up against now. There's an interesting uh, a last point, then I'll stop rambling about these these great books but um there there's an interesting you can always ramble with us i mean rambling on yes. great books is exactly what we do so don't worry <laughs> you're safe that's it's why safe i'm here Fantastic. <laughs> oh, yes i feel i feel seen um <laughs> the uh, here's an interesting tidbit you can find at least part and perhaps all of machiavelli's discourses on livy um at marxists.org and wow. this is not a um, this is not a combination that you might predict if you had to sort of sit and um, and the reason that you can find it is because uh, Machiavelli speaks at some length about uh, wealth inequality and class inequality in his approach to um, to the decline of the Roman Empire, and he basically says that inequality. I mean, this is something that that uh, Plato sort of foresees in the Republic when he talks about the two cities at war with one another, the cities of the have and the city of the have nots. But, um, you know, I am no Marxist by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I take serious issue with Marxism in the book. Um, but I, I find it very interesting and kind of an antidote to our either or politics that just because you aren't a Marxist doesn't mean you can't think in a, you know an honest way about the challenges that uh, extreme wealth inequality present to a Republic, And so this is, uh, I guess, an example of another thing that great books do is because the authors that you're dealing with aren't up against the same exact same political challenges or questions that you're up against, they sometimes cut interestingly through some of the kind of binaries that you've imposed on yourself. Like, you know, I'm part of the red team or the blue team, so I have to think this way on this issue. It's like, well, Machiavelli is no slouch and he's certainly no wimp, but he also recognizes that you can't let these, uh, you know, monopolistic enterprises get entirely out of hand. Um, that's, to me, I think, a real object lesson in, in how these books can uh, enrich us. Well, I, I'm obviously uh, in agreement with the importance and the value that we can get by studying the ancient uh, texts and going back in history. Um, and I, I have like one final question, and maybe this is a hard one to, to end with. But um, do you think that the West can definitely be saved? Is it sort of inevitable, the decline? And if so, are the ideas alone sufficient? Does there need to be an action or structural changes, something that's beyond us mere mortals? <laughs> the short answer is yes, the West can be saved. And in fact, I would go further and I would say yes, the West will be saved. Um, the question is not whether 
these traditions are going to endure in some form, but what role we're going to play in 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 the history of uh, their development. And I say this because the question, can the West be saved, is not the same thing as will America fall one day or even, you know, what's going to happen in some of the, you know, in some of the terrible political crises that, that we're facing in, in Europe at the moment. Um, those crises are important. Their outcomes matter. I do not mean in any way to suggest that they don't. Um, but they are also out of our control. And so if it were the case that, you know, it depended, the, the future of the West depended wholly on the outcome of the 2024 election, let's say, um, then I think we would have to despair because neither you nor I is able to kind of wave a magic wand and get the right outcome, the perfect vote, whatever. Alas, right? Um, but one of the things we learn, uh, and this is the point really of that regime section at the end of the book, is that <laughs> the... Traditions of the West have this curious habit of preparing for their own demise. Um, and you get this right back at the beginning, you know, in with with Herodotus, that some of the cities when I was when I was young, some of the cities that are now great were small, and some of the cities that are now small were great, right? This this real profound sense in Athens, especially, perhaps because of their their own shocking upset against the Persian Empire, that you know, these uh the greatness of of cities comes and goes, right? And ultimately, someday, I hope it won't be during our lifetimes, but someday there won't be an America anymore, you know. Um, and, and so our hope for the, the good and for the future of the West has to be further on than that, even if we are very invested in politics, as I believe we, we should be. Um, the, the example that I always give is Cicero, who at the end of the Roman Republic is writing some of the best uh, theoretical defenses of, of you know, Republican government I, I have ever personally read. <laughs> and uh, in the immediate term, in the short scheme of things, Cicero fails utterly. The Republic ends, uh, Cicero dies, the new regime is ushered in, and it's one of autocracy and empire that will endure for hundreds of years. Fast forward to the 1770s, and who should stand up in defense of the Declaration of Independence but one John Adams, a man who from his youth has poured over the speeches of none other than Marcus Julius Cicero. And so, you know, if that's the timescale that we're talking on, and it is because, you know, the, the West is not something that's confined to one period in history. If that's our timescale, then we simply do not know who is going to pick up the torch that we're carrying today, even if we feel like it's about to go out our, ourselves, um, which means we have uh, no right to despair. And uh, and no place or cause to despair. Um, we have we have a job to do, which is to wake up tomorrow um, to seek the good, the true, and the beautiful in the city in which we find ourselves, and to leave the rest to God. Well, beautifully said, and uh, I I love the idea. I think of our future generations as the future stewards of of history, and that it is um it's important to persevere. So uh, I think uh, on that note, um, where can people find your book? Oh, well, thank you for asking. Uh, you can find How to Save the West wherever books are sold. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, howtosavethewestbook.com is a URL that you can visit uh, and find all these different platforms and portals. And you can follow me at Spencer Clavin, and I will be tweeting incessantly about it uh, to get people to pre-order. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Spencer. Thank you, Anya. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Classical Wisdom Society members can listen to the entire podcast on classicalwisdom.com.